Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Tourpreneur. My name is Mitch Bach, and today we have a fantastic episode for you. I am speaking with Akila McConnell. Many of you may know her from her talks at Arrival. She is a fantastic mentor to many tour operators out there and a powerhouse of a businesswoman who has really taken her food tour company and expanded it into something very interesting. Her business's expansion and growth came from not looking at her competitors, but from what she calls the first mover advantage, thinking creatively, finding the gaps in the market and going beyond what the typical boundaries are of a tour operator. We talked for a long time, over two hours. Luckily for you, we are splitting the episode into a couple of parts. And as always, for our Tourpreneur Plus members, you will get bonus premium content. You'll find show notes and so much more on tourpreneur.com. Akila McConnell, a huge welcome to Tourpreneur. Well, hi, everybody, and thanks so much, Mitch, for having me on. I am shocked and awed that you haven't yet been on the podcast to share your wisdom because you are one of the operators that I know many hold in high esteem for your wisdom and just your generosity in terms of how much you work with other operators to empower them and educate them. Uh, I can't promise any wisdom, but I can always promise help. So I'm always around. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. And um, I tell people all the time. You can reach out to me via email, or you can reach out to me. If you are going to be at Arrival, I will be at Arrival. You can always hang out, grab me a cup of coffee. I actually don't drink coffee, so you can just get me a Coke or water. Water works really well, too. We call that a cheap date. That's exactly. fantastic. <laughs> Akila, the thing I love about tour operators is usually they don't graduate high school and go into it, which means they have a backstory. I was wondering what yours is. What brought you into this profession and what were you doing beforehand? Uh, so I like to call myself a jack of all trades. And um, I actually uh, have an accounting degree, a philosophy degree and a law degree. Uh, guess how many of those degrees I actually use in my day to day life? Uh, pretty much none. But I practiced law for about four years. And um, 
it is funny. I tell people, especially when I'm on radio shows and podcasts, that radio changed my life. Um, I really hated my job as an attorney. And I used to have a 30-minute commute. And I would uh, drive into work. And in the morning, there was this radio show that uh, for a while, I mean, this is back in 2007, uh, they were featuring this woman who had quit her job and used up all her savings to travel around the world. I had never heard about anybody doing this before. Um, and, you know, nowadays it seems more common and, you know, there's blog posts, but, you know, I mean, you had to remember 2007, there were no blogs. Like this is really kind of the way that you would get information was you would get information from newspapers, from books, from uh, radio and from TV. And I was just riveted every time I uh, listened to this woman talk about this idea. I was like, I've got to do this. Um, so I convinced my husband, who is basically the uh, most amazing man. He just like, I give him a crazy idea. And he's like, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. We should do that. Um, and uh, so we did. We actually quit our jobs. Our original plan was that we would travel for six months. And then I started writing about our travels. And as I wrote about them, uh, you know, newspapers picked up my writing. I was writing for CNN, for um, USA Today, for About.com, like all these big sites. And I thought, you know what, this is way more fun than being an attorney. Uh, so we actually traveled around the world for three and a half years. And I became a full-time freelance food and travel writer, uh, which is really where I get my passion for storytelling from. And uh, as part of that, I took hundreds of tours, uh, food tours, walking tours, ghost tours, history tours. Uh, and I love tours. I feel like there's no better way that you can see and experience the world than through walking with a local, learning from a local. And uh, I came back to Atlanta in um, 2013 because I uh, was getting ready to have my first child and I was still working as a freelance writer, but it wasn't all that much fun to write about travel when I couldn't actually travel. And I thought, you know what, the next best thing would be introduce travelers to my own city. And so uh, that is how I started up Atlanta Food Walks, which became Unexpected Atlanta and now um, both Unexpected Atlanta and Unexpected Virtual Tours. Wow. So a lot to unpack there. <laughs> we will save your branding shift for later in the conversation. I want to get into that. But a couple of things. First of all, I'm also a philosophy graduate. Oh, great. And... Good. So we can hang out and talk about like Socrates and Plato after this. So. so yeah, we'll save the listeners that discussion right now. We'll save that for a bonus episode sometime. But uh, I bet because of your law degree, you have the fiercest terms and conditions page of any operator website out there. <laughs> you know, uh, terms and condition page is actually pretty low key. But the big thing is that for private tours, uh, we have a really, really strong conditions uh, page that we utilize for all of our private tour customers. And um, I'm actually often surprised by this because I talk to a lot of tour operators and people say, oh, you know what, this private tour customer just up and canceled on me. 
And I'm like, well, did you have terms and conditions set forward that had all of the information associated with cancellations? Um, for individuals, you know what? At most, I'm going to lose 80 bucks, maybe 160 bucks. But with uh, large groups where you can lose thousands and thousands of dollars, those terms and conditions, they will save you over and over again. Um, so highly recommend if you have not had an attorney to review your terms and conditions for private tour customers, go get it done. That's such good advice. Often in the group, we are uh, hearing people saying, can I have a template? Can I have something that that helps me avoid a lawyer? I do agree. Those are one of the places where investment of whatever money it takes to get those airtight and right for your business is great advice. Yeah. And, and to be quite honest, you know, I, I do think uh, people often think about attorneys as very like scary, like, oh, I'm going to spend tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, there's a lot of attorneys out there who specialize in small business work and they can pull together a terms and conditions page for you, maybe at most for 2000 bucks. And it will save you over and over and over again in the future, especially if you do a lot of corporate or private tour work. So I had this image of you walking the beaches of Italy and then sitting down at your laptop and just writing these lovely little articles and suddenly CNN is knocking on your door. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about the nuts and bolts? Because this is probably really interesting to our community of how you suddenly were involved in writing and being covered by these major outlets? That's actually kind of how it happened. It wasn't Italy. <laughs> it was in Australia. But um, but yeah, I mean, actually, that is kind of the story. So, um, you know, I... I think there's a lot to be said for first mover advantage that we tend not to talk about as much in the tour operator world. Um, and I, I utilize the first mover advantage a lot uh, in, I think a big part of my business model has always been to see where there are gaps. And I try to go and fill those gaps. And back in 2008, one of the huge gaps in the market was that there really were no, at that time, I mean, this is, you know, 16 years ago or whatever time it was. Um, you made it were, sound like the stone age when you were describing <laughs> it. it. it, it, it was um there were no food and travel bloggers so there were lots of food bloggers there were lots of travel bloggers uh but there were no there were no food and travel bloggers and i looked at this and i was like why doesn't this exist um it just seemed like an obvious gap and so um i was one of the very first bloggers who uh, developed a food and travel blog. And we were really focused on telling the history behind food, the culture behind food. So like, for example, we would go to Thailand and we would be walking around, um, you know, like the street vendors and we would stop in and we would talk to a street vendor. And I don't know if you know the blogger Migra Migrationology uh, by Mark Weens, He and I actually both started at the same time. Um, he now has like... I don't know, 10 million YouTube viewers. Um, and, uh, and, you know, obviously I moved out of the blogging space into the tourism space. 
but that, you know, having that first mover advantage is huge because all of a sudden, you know, the press is looking for new things to write about. And so uh, all of a sudden we were just getting tons of press from CNN and LA Times and that sort of thing. And there weren't a lot of people out there writing about both. Um, I mean, this is pre-Anthony Bourdain, you know? I mean, like this is very, very early in this whole segment. That's fascinating. You created this sort of new niche before you even knew you were helping to create it. Would you say there's still opportunity now for tour operators to find these prime mover advantages? Are there? Oh, absolutely. All the time. And and we're taking, I mean, we're still taking advantage of it. Um, I mean, our pivot into the virtual space, uh, we have a huge first mover advantage that we have developed now. I mean, now we've been doing it for almost three years, uh, but that is a super successful business model because we have a first mover advantage. Um, I think about uh, Justin Buzzy, um, you know, with his clear kayaks, first mover advantage. I mean, super smart. He saw a big gap in the market and he went for it and he's doing really well. Um, there's that new um, New York uh, bus that has the seats where you're looking out. Um, what is that? Yeah, the ride. The ride. Yes, exactly. I mean, first mover advantage. You know that in another two years, there's going to be a ton of people who are coming in and doing the same thing. Um, even, even I think things like, uh, you know, pushing away from the tourist space, but even in attraction space, I mean, there is constantly first mover advantages that, that can be found. It, it sounds like though it, it takes commitment and it takes guts and it takes creativity because it's much safer, much easier to read a bunch of business books, read a bunch of blogs and say, this is what everybody's doing to be successful. And so therefore, that's what I'm going to do. I think I see that also a lot with tour operators that go on to Viator and they look at everything that's in their neighborhood, in their region, in their city. And then they say, I'll just do one of these tours. I'll create a version of that. You're, you're saying get out there, strike something new and figure it out. Because if you do, then there's, there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah. And I always think about this in terms of gaps. Uh, so I think, you know, one of the best ways is yes, of course, this is going to take guts. It's going to take creativity, but it's also when you're hanging out with your friends and you're like, man, I wish somebody did X, Y, and Z. Why can't you be that somebody, <laughs> you know? Um, you can be that person that fills the gaps that you and your friends want to see or that you and your spouse wants to see. Um, it, I, you know, really and truly speaking, I would say right now in the tourism space, there is an immense amount of opportunity associated with connectivity um, that is really not fully being utilized yet. Um, and, uh, you know, like there's Clea Muse who is doing um, the self-guided walking tours, but you know, I mean, there's so much more that can go beyond that. I mean, there's just huge opportunities in the way that we now can integrate our phones and our devices in the tourism space. And I see, because I continue to take lots of tours, I see very, very few tour operators 
really thinking about how to utilize that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think it's a little it's a little like Game of Thrones in which you have this massive threat slash opportunity coming from the north beyond the wall, but everybody's so busy fighting their daily fights and their daily hustles of running the tours and figuring out what tomorrow looks like that they aren't thinking strategically necessarily about the opportunities on the horizon with massive shifts in the way transportation, the mobility is going to look, the way technology is going well beyond look at your phone and listen to somebody talk about a specific stop. There's, there's a lot on the horizon and a lot of opportunity there for. Yeah. And, and it's also about scale, but it's also about, uh, you know, this word pivoting, which I think everybody is so tired of this word pivoting, but truly and really speaking as an entrepreneur, aren't you always pivoting? I mean, like if you look at Coca-Cola, people can be like, oh, well, Coca-Cola, they've been making the same product that they've made for 140 years. But that is actually not true. Uh, just yesterday, my husband was at a, gross, uh, a gas station and he picks up this disgusting drink called Coca-Cola Starlight. That is like Coke mixed with cotton candy. Oh my gosh, it was so gross. Both of us were like, why? Like, why would you make this disgusting drink? But that's because they're constantly reinventing. They're constantly thinking about, hey, what's the next next thing? Because yes, of course, Coca-Cola is going to be their number one bestseller, but there is going to be a tiny segment of the population that really likes cotton candy infused in Coca-Cola. Not me, by the way. Um, and for that segment, Coca-Cola Starlight is going to be the best new drink. So, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, this is our job is constantly to find the next big thing. And sometimes they're going to be disgusting and sometimes <laughs> they're going to be amazing and you don't know until you try. <laughs> I, it reminds me of Pepsi Clear. Do you remember when suddenly oh, my... Absolutely. My cola looked like club soda. Yes, and I was like, yes. <laughs> um, it, it also reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever visited the Ben and Jerry's factory yes. in Vermont. Yes. Up the hill, they have the graveyard of their flavors that don't exist anymore. They are constantly trying new and different flavors. Some of them don't work out. Some of them need to die. And they have little grave, little, they have little tombstones for the flavors that didn't quite work out or they decided were, 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 were done. And I think sometimes, you know, this is, this, is, this is constant in the world of experienced designers, user experience. Right now I have four logged in Instagram accounts and every account when I switch to it, has a different user interface because Instagram is completely changing and testing and iterating all the time. And sometimes I do think that an operator thinks the tour itself is the last thing to think about. It's about your marketing. It's about your business plan. It's about all of your sales channels. And the tour stays roughly the same for years, decades. And I'm wondering what your journey has been in terms of the design and the creation of your in-person tours. So before we go down 
all of these rabbit holes that I absolutely have to go down because it's it's pure gold. Uh, I want to just start at the beginning with your in-person tours and what you offer as an operator and what that evolution or that ideation on those tours has been like over the years. Um, well, we love testing. So my team is ultra creative. I hire very, very, very creative people. Um, and it's actually a part of our, um, even interview process is looking for creative creativity. I want creativity, not just in my back office staff, but also in my tour guides. Um, and so I would say that very few of our tours, maybe none of our tours, uh, look exactly like the way that they did when they started, uh, because there is a constant level of iteration. Um, every six months, we're kind of going back, looking at the stuff that we did and be like, eh, this was terrible. Let's change this. Um, and it keeps it fresh. It keeps it interesting. Um, currently, we have two in-person tours that we're running. And I know you're thinking, wait, that seems super small. Uh, but that is very intentional in that we feel like um, from a scaling perspective, it's a lot easier to uh, make two really, really phenomenal tours and sell a whole ton of those tours than for us to create 10 mediocre experiences and sell not that many of those mediocre experiences. I mean, this is kind of like the Apple methodology. You know, Apple basically has, you know, three to four products. You know, they've got the iWatch, they've got the phone, they've got the... Um, the iMac and then they've got the uh, iPad and they just sell those over and over and over again and there are some slight tweaks and slight upgrades and that's kind of our approach as well um so we have currently one food tour one history tour um we do have another food tour that is currently on hiatus uh because we're trying to refigure out some restaurants for that um but our ideation process always starts with, um, you know, finding the gaps. That's a really, really big part of our journey is we look in the market to see what is not currently being covered. Um, and, uh, you know, a big part of our approach is real in-depth historic research. So it takes us about... Uh, four to six months just to develop the history behind any tour. And that's because we're using, um, you know, I mean, we're using like first person documentation, diary entries. And, um, you know, like we literally go down to the library and we're like going through the microfiche catalog. And, you know, I mean, doing like the old school type research uh, that you used to do back when you were a kid. Back um, in 2007, back back in when 2007 there, was, yes. there was only microfiche. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then we develop a story. So I have, um, including me, we have three historians on staff. Um, and I have a very small team, by the way. Um, my team is only, I only have eight, uh, like, true employees. Um, and then I've got, like, two to three 
part-timers. Um, so we've got a really small team and of those eight, we have three, three of us are historians. Yeah. I promise you nobody thought you had a small team when you said we have three historians on staff. Yeah. It's, I mean, we, we, we keep our team really small and that's because, um, you know, as much as possible, I'd like, I like to make sure that my team is taken care of. And, you know, they, um, my, you know, six, six of my team members, no, no. Oh yeah. All eight of those team members are full-time and they get medical benefits and healthcare and, uh, you know, 401k and PTO and all of that good stuff. And then I have three part-timers um, and those full-timers, I mean, they're, they're tour guides. So there's very, there are very few um, tour companies I know that have full-time tour guides, uh, but we do. And this was kind of, again, intentional. We used to have like close to 15 part-timers and I was like, Hey, we can, you know, trim this down and just get, you know, make our, full-time people full-time and give them better benefits. But anyway, that's a totally different discussion. So no, um, it's one we're going to have, <laughs> but let's stick, let's stick with the tour. So you've yeah, done these so, months of research. So months of research. And then, um, and then if we're doing a food tour, obviously we're integrating our food vendors. We do a lot of food tasting and food testing because we want to see how good the food is. Um, and this is really where the creativity element comes into play because we're always thinking about, you know, how do we create an experience that feels totally different uh, than and something you would get anywhere else. So for example, our uh, walking tour, we give you a sticker book. So you get, uh, for adults, it's not for children. It's one that we had an artist develop and design and it's a postcard. And as you're walking around to all the spots, you put in stickers of all the locations that you're seeing. Um, it's a different way. Uh, it's a way for you to use your hands and get a sense of the environment. Um, and it feels something that's totally different than anything you're gonna get anywhere else. And, you know, um, that's just one example. I mean, we have m you know many variations on this on all of our tours. Um, our street art tour, for example, you actually have the ability to go and spray paint street art yourself. So it's, it's really like, thinking about how do we create that level of engagement that will get people um, excited uh, and feeling like they're a part of the city and not just seeing the city from a passive perspective. I mean, there's a famous philosophy article that is the thought experiment of what if you are just a brain in a vat? You're just a brain disconnected from your outside senses. How would you know? And it's funny because in some ways, uh, sometimes tours become so cerebral that they become so just brain focused and information focused. All you're doing is remembering that humans are humans and they want to stamp things or they want stickers. They want to spray paint things. They want to be human and feel involved in the experience and all of their humanness, which means with their senses and their different ways of learning and different ways of engaging. Yeah. And, um, you know, a big part of that, you know, speaking to that humanness, and I've talked about this at Arrival a couple of different times, and I think I've done a, a couple of different podcasts about this, is um, as humans, we crave narrative storytelling. Um, you know, this is a fundamental wired part of our biologies. Uh, you know, it is, it is the way it's part of our makeup as humans. And um, 
throwing a lot of information at guests without weaving it into a cohesive story leaves guests at the end feeling confused and also feeling unsatisfied, dissatisfied. Um, and, you know, side note on this, I yesterday, actually, I happened to watch the new Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder. And at the end of the movie, I asked my husband, I was like, yeah, what do you think? And both of us had the same feedback, which is there was so much information that did not seem to tie into a cohesive story that even though the visuals were amazing and, you know, of course there was Chris Hemsworth, who is also amazing. um, That taps into certain senses. Yes, exactly. Uh, Yeah, there. Yes, absolutely on that. Um, You know, at the end of it, we just, kind of felt dissatisfied with the movie because there was no true narrative arc that engaged us as audience members. Um, And that is so important with a tour as well. That narrative arc really helps your audience stay tuned into the story that you're sharing and the places that you're visiting. This is this is definitely a podcast that could be 29 podcasts of three hours each. And so I'm going to try to keep us on course because this is every, for me, this is everything. I think the last talk I gave at arrival, it was called storytelling is everything. Why are you obsessed with your marketing or with your sales or with your booking software? And you don't actually know how to create that sort of arc that leaves me humanly satisfied with the content that you're giving me. And it's funny because you you see you see you see examples of 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 bad storytelling quite often i or 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 okay storytelling i just went to the harry potter musical uh, mm. uh, sorry it's a play in yeah Broadway. yeah the yeah the cursed child the cursed child quite the show but what happened was during the pandemic they had reshifted the two separate plays part 1 and part 2 into one It was just one play of three hours and 45 minutes. And I'll say, I enjoyed it, but it was like that you could tell they were cramming two parts into one three and a half hour show because everybody was delivering their lines at at lightning speed and there was no time for transition, Mm -hmm. no time for breathing, no time for processing. It was just, whoa, it's just overload, overload, overload. And they seem to have forgotten a little bit about the pacing and the processing that humans need when you're receiving all of this new information. And a tour operator is often throwing a lot of new information and story at them. And so you need those moments of pause. We just actually had a storytelling podcast on Tourpreneur about that. But I'm interested, I want to continue this thread for a little bit about the role of storytelling on your tours because you're a food tour but you're also a history tour. How do you balance what story means in the context of people who also want to just come and eat things in Atlanta? Uh, So for us, storytelling is everything. Um, Our guides don't, we don't even call them tour guides. Uh, Their official title is storytellers. Um, It's, it's a, really critical part we have. Um, And I think there's two sides to storytelling that I should just mention before I talk about 
you know, how do you balance history and discomfort? Because I or or fun and discomfort, I should say, because I think that's a really important topic too. But there's two parts in storytelling. There is first the writing of the story. And then there is the delivery of the story. And uh, your example of, um, you know, a Broadway musical is an excellent example of that. So um, I actually watched Hamilton here in Atlanta. And uh, oh my gosh, I like, we're blown away. I love Hamilton. I mean, the storytelling is just superb. And the person who played Hamilton when I watched it was uh, a touring actor. So he was not Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, he was so good. Oh my God, he had the most amazing voice. And so then um, we watched it on Disney Plus and it was Lin-Manuel Miranda who was performing Hamilton. And, you know, there's going to be some people who disagree with me on this, but I think- yeah, Careful what you say next. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, think, I think Miranda's genius is his writing. I mean, his genius is his ability to consolidate massive amounts of information into, you know, very clever, pithy statements um, and music. I think he is a good singer. I don't think that's his genius. Um, and I feel like that's the same thing with tours. So there's going to be some people on your team that their genius is writing the story and some people their genius is going to be telling actually performing the story and as the operator as the owner you need to figure out who those people are maybe you are the person who is the genius at writing and your guides are the genius at storytelling or you know actually performing or maybe it's the reverse. Maybe you need to hire somebody who is a writer and you're the one who's performing. Um, and that's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Only you know that. But that aspect of it is so important because often I will hear operators say, oh, well, I write all of the stories. And my question is, well, is that your genius? Or is your genius performing in which case Maybe you need somebody else to write and you need to be out there actually telling the stories and only you know that for yourself. Um, so that's one big aspect. So for me, I would say my genius is writing. I think I'm a good performer. I am not a genius performer. Um, I have some people on my team who are genius performers. Uh, I mean, th that is really their zone of genius is performance. Um, and so I create the stories, I build the stories. I have another team member who is also a historian. His genius also is writing and visual development. And we jointly build our stories and then we give it to the people on our team who are the geniuses at performance. Um, and they deliver and they do an exceptional job. Now, um, balancing discomfort and fun, because I think behind your question is, well, history is often boring. History is often uncomfortable. If somebody is coming to take a food tour, they're expecting 
hey, I'm just going to be coming and eating and having a good time. So we're, number one, we're very, very explicit in our marketing up front that this isn't just sit down. Like we actually have this, like we say, this is not just eating food. I'm pretty certain we use those exact words because we want people to be prepared when they come in and know that this is an experience. Um, we also are very proud of the fact that we tell uncomfortable stories because we think that those stories are the ones that need to be told. Uh, and we want people to get more comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, you know, and this is slightly political for a second, but bear with me. Uh, right now, I mean, there's a lot of pushback in teaching um, stories associated with minorities, with the disenfranchised, um, especially in the South where we live. Um, there's a huge amount of pushback against teaching LGBTQ education. And we see our purpose as telling those stories, uh, even though it may make people uncomfortable. But what amazes people is the way in which we tell those stories. They want more. They keep telling us, they're like, oh my gosh, this was a two hour tour. I could have sat here for five hours with them because it was just so good. It was so fun. It was so engaging. Um, and same thing with our virtual experiences. Uh, we get feedback all the time that says, oh, this was a one hour experience. I wish I could have done this you know, for three hours. Um, and that's, that is, the way in which we structure those stories, which is through that narrative arc. Um, and then it is the way in which our performers tell those stories, which is what you were talking about, which is the pacing, which is the space, the pauses. Um, I mean, and we spend a lot of time training our, our storytellers. Um, and one of the big things that we work on is emphasis and pausing, because I think that's a really big part of storytelling. We'll leave it at that for today and be back very soon with the second installment of my discussion with Akila, in which we start to look into her virtual tour business, her pivot to corporate, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and you'll get show notes and more on tourpreneur.com. 